You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and making bricks and beams for baby hospitals. This is season two, episode five, Repentance in Iron Man. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. I'm a little sick today, uh, but hopefully my voice sounds even better for the radio. It just sounds like you have a lot of depth to it's you. It's deep. Yeah. I, do. I do. Actually, it's a funny story. A woman at my church who I, I adore uh, stops me yesterday and, and says, you know, ever since you've been meditating, your sermons have just gotten so much. And then she kind of made this, this motion with her hand where she like put it from her head down. Oh. And, and I was like, I think I know what you mean. You mean they, they've been deeper, right? And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. That's oh, what I, I thought meant. Been like, you know, they've really tanked. They've gone downhill, way downhill. <laughs> but she, she just started she just started <laughs> cracking up because she meant something completely different with the gesture than what would be commonly understood. Fair enough. Well, it's, that was very kind of her to give you that feedback. And now you know you should keep meditating. I need to keep meditating. Yes, yes. Uh, what are we meditating on today? We are talking about Repentance in Iron Man, which is a film I haven't seen in many years. So it was a real joy to return back to it, especially now with the whole arc of the MCU, mm -hmm. at least in this era, kind of complete to look back at the very beginning and see the, or I love, as you know, I love origin stories. I love the beginnings of things. Uh, mm -hmm. I love those boring parts in the Harry Potter books where they're recapping what happened last time. And so seeing Iron Man again was like, this is the beginning of, of all that came afterwards. But what do we have from scripture to set us up for today? We have a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter two. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is from Iron Man, when Tony is sending Pepper into his office to take files, proving that Obadiah has been double-dealing. He says, You stood by my side all these years while I reaped the benefits of destruction. And now that I'm trying to protect people that I put in harm's way, you're going to walk out? I shouldn't be alive unless it was for a reason. I'm not crazy, Pepper. I just finally know what I have to do. And I know in my heart that it's right. We are back talking about Iron Man. Now, we're, when we say Iron Man here, we are talking about the 2008 Iron Man movie, the first movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starring Robert Downey Jr. in the title role. I think Robert Downey Jr. was the absolute perfect actor to cast as Iron Man. I cannot imagine anybody else playing him. Oh, I can't now after all these films. Well, and even and even uh, in back then, it seemed like the perfect casting for that character, and it actually fits into our topic today because Robert mm. Downey Jr. himself had gone to a, like a very, you know, dark place in his life as an That's actor. That's a really good right? point. Yeah, he, he had you know a drug addiction and and so forth, and then turned it all around, and and then became the linchpin of this enormous movie franchise. And I think you can see that in this initial film, the. Tony's journey is so much longer than just this initial movie, but it definitely lays the groundwork for a lot and, and covers a lot of ground in the terms of repentance, in terms of changing one's life and turning oneself around. So uh, let's start right there because mm -hmm. the concept of repentance is something we need to define before we talk about Tony Stark. Because I think if we use the word in the way that it's commonly understood, it's not going to make sense as far as Iron Man is concerned. And that's why I want to talk about this movie because it so it so illustrates the true meaning of repentance. Right. So when we think of repentance in a more in a less precise sense, I think of just feeling bad and saying sorry. And I don't think that's what it really is truly about. Right. And we we often will in our mind when we think of repent, the word repent, we have like Bible thumping people screaming on street corners you know, repent, the end, is, the near, end is near, that kind of thing. When And when we are thinking about that kind of understanding of repentance, it's as if 
you know, the moment you repent, therefore everything is going to be fine. And, uh, so you, you got to time it right at the moment of the end happening or else it's all for naught. Well, there's, there aren't those stories from the middle ages of knights getting baptized on the battlefield as they lay dying at the vet, you know, getting it right at the last possible second, thinking that that would preserve them and safely deliver them unto heaven. Right. And when you, when you think about that, it really shows how it's just very simplistic. I think in short term, uh, in black and white, I think of repentance as an ongoing, uh, well, like we'll talk about a changing of heart, which does not happen in an instant. The word repent in the Greek of the New Testament is the word metanoia, which means to change your mind or to go beyond your mind. The trouble is that in the fourth century, in the Vulgate version of the Bible, which is the Latin version uh, translated by St. Jerome, Jerome translated it with the word penitentia, or to be penitent. Uh, And they're different. To be penitent doesn't necessarily mean you're actually changing your heart or changing your life. It just means feeling, being sorry for something. Um, And we talked a lot about being sorry last time when we discussed reconciliation and brave, but there's a, there's another step when we're talking about repentance, um, which is, we're going to talk about today. Um, So being penitent, uh, you think about Indiana Jones, you know, only the penitent man shall pass, only the penitent man shall pass. What does the penitent man do? He kneels before God kneel, you know? And so there's the idea of kneeling in fealty, uh, to be penitent or to seek to do penance means to make some sort of action that shows your contrition. Um, and, and yet in our, in our understanding of, of penitence or penance, it's, it's often like an assignment, mm, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we have that uh, kind of cartoonish understanding of, of uh, Catholic Con- confession, right? right? Yep. Confession, say, ten, say yeah. 10 Hail Marys and you're good. Ten Hail Marys, you know, seven Our Fathers. Yep. Um, this is a great uh, Eddie Izzard bit. Uh, the comedian Eddie Izzard who talks about Anglican confession, and he says, um, "Oh no!" You go and you say that you go to the Father, and, and you say, oh, "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned." And the Father goes, "Oh, so have I." <laughs> oh no! Anyway, so I I don't know what I was talking about before we, we got there. About, Penitence. Um, the oh, the cartoonish understanding as, a, of, as, a, as an assignment. Yeah, and contrition. Yeah, penitence, contrition as an assignment. And true repentance, metanoia, that Greek Mm. word metanoia is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life. Well, that makes sense going back even further. My training's not in Greek, but I took two whole years of Hebrew. Hey. And if I remember correctly, the word that frequently gets translated as repent is shuv, which literally means to turn back, to return, which again is more restorative and action oriented than just a sort of emotion of feeling bad about something. Theologian Richard Rohr, who recently wrote a book called The Universal Christ, talks about the moralistic trap you can fall into when you understand repentance simply as feeling sorry or being penitent. Uh, and he says that um, when you fall into this trap, it happens when we think about repentance as changing a few externals while our underlying worldview often remains fully narcissistic and self-referential. He continues, This misunderstanding contributed to a puritanical, externalized, and largely static notion of the Christian message that has followed us to this day. Faith became about external requirements that could be enforced, punished, and rewarded much more than an actual change of heart and mind. Wow. And when I read that, I I thought of Tony Stark, this idea of, a worldview that remains fully narcissistic, I can't say narcissistic, a worldview that remains fully narcissistic and mm-hmm. self-referential. That describes Tony Stark at the beginning of Iron Man. Absolutely. Because he is just the worst. He's very self-centered. He's self-centered. He's a womanizer. He is. Uh, he pays lip service to pretty much everything and unapologetically so. I mean, it's it's very honest. Yeah, honest in like a in a cudgeling sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think just expanding that, if you 
think of that development, it's understandable how one can get the idea of God being a person with a carrot and a stick that we have to appease, that kind of um, very limiting and harmful idea of who God is. Whereas if you're looking deeper at the word repentance as, as a return, as a change of heart, a change of life is so much more relational and life-giving, I think. Yeah. And then the more recent translation of the Bible, the Common English Bible, which came out in 2011, anytime the word repent appears in the text, it says, change your heart and life. Wow. It actually translates it as the full phrase. Yeah. And and I love that because it really brings to life the concept of repentance Mm -hmm. in a way that the word, which I think has been co-opted to mean that kind of end of time um, you know, that, that battlefield baptism you talked about. Right. Clean, clean, your, clean your house right before you die. Otherwise, you're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're going to talk today about metanoia as far as Tony Stark is concerned. Because in the first Iron Man movie, we actually see this process happening. And then we see the world, specifically his company, pushing mm-hmm. back on him. Yes. Um, and, and we're going to stick in the first Iron Man movie today. We're not going to venture out further into the rest of the MCU where we get more and more of Tony's story. We're really just going to stay within that first movie. So so let's start where Tony's the worst. And that whole opening act is just juxtaposed against each other to show that he is the worst. We we get him in the Humvee or the Fun V. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we get him in the Fun V and, uh, and him getting captured. And then we, we jump back 36 hours yeah. and uh, he's going to accept this award. He's this American patriot and, and so forth. Um, he's not there to accept the award because he's gambling and he's not taking anything seriously. Yeah. The opening scenes are just so carefully constructed to show this unapologetic like selfishness and his efficiency, which is kind of terrifying and used purely in this case to make money to preserve American interests around the globe, as they say, um, by, you know, to be producing weapons, um, which later on gets used for their, you know, for the Avengers, but for now is just purely turned in this war machine that his father started. Um, and just that juxtaposition between him and the, the soldiers who are actually, you know, being affected by the weapons and the people around him. And he's just in this in this bubble of wealth and glitz and tech. Um, you even see it in that opening scene in the fun V where he's sitting there twirling his whiskey glass and his sunglasses and his suit and the soldiers all around him um, are kind of fawning over him until that missile hits. And then there's a complete role reversal and he is, his world is shattered in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the missile that lands says Stark and Stark is it Stark Industries? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Stark Industries right there on it. And he has just enough time to process that information before it goes off and his world is rocked. And all of these weapons that he's been creating, he picked up in his father's footsteps where his father had the philosophy, peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. And then and he tries to justify it with the reporter by saying that military funding brought breakthroughs like in the medical technology world and in telecrops, whatever those are. Um, and yet uh, he, he seems to be saying that just as a way to get her off his back. Well, we see that later when he mentioned the arc reactor that runs his factory to Yinsen. But then later on when he's talking to Obadiah about it, Obadiah is saying that was just a publicity stunt, you know, so it's it's all for show. So maybe... Maybe they produced medical tech or IntelliCrops, but it's likely for a PR move. And we see later on Obadiah being so concerned about spinning it, mm-hmm. getting control of the situation to spin it in a positive light to smooth things over that I'm pretty sure it's all part of that same game plan. And so when we see that they need to make Tony really just a repulsive character, and thankfully they have an actor like Robert Downey Jr. who can make who can be a likable, repulsive character. It's you really know? amazing because, yeah, he must have a very high charisma score because you cannot help but enjoy watching this world that he's in. Yeah, even, even when the, the stewardesses on the plane start kind of doing like a strip tease <laughs> with him and Rhodey, oh um, you're like, still, I kind of like the guy, even though he's the womanizer, he's completely non-reflect, non-reflective of his own self. He's the, you know, the merchant of death. And the people around him respond to that. I think, I mean, you have Rhodes who says, you know, you don't respect yourself, so you don't respect me. 
which I think, but, Mm -hmm. and he's constantly being disrespected by, I guess their old friends. They mentioned something about, you know, hanging out in the eighties or something. So I'm guessing they go back a while, but he still loosens up around him and he gets drawn into that world. Um, And people kind of like hanging out around him, which is why I think Christine's, the reporter's prodding and her insistence on um, at least asking the questions, even if then she relents and goes to bed with him, she at least is willing to put up a mirror, albeit an imperfect one. But Pepper's character is not one, at least in the beginning, to question him to, she, she keeps him on track, but she's not going to make, hold up a mirror to his life and ask mm-hmm. him to change. Mm-hmm. She's very much on board with what is happening around her. So those are the first few minutes of the movie, and then we can jump into the into the cave in Afghanistan here in a second. But did you catch the two biblical references in the first 15 minutes? I got Jericho. There's I didn't the Jericho. catch the other one. The other one is him saying, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's as he hands the award. He hands the award to the guy who's dressed, you know, in kind of Roman garb at the casino. Oh my gosh. No, I missed that completely. <laughs> so two, two biblical references in the beginning right. of this movie. And Jericho, of course, being kind of, you know, it destroys walls. It pull, brings down walls. So it's but, a well But he's also saying missile. that I'm God, right? Yeah. By saying, yeah. by calling Ooh. it the Jericho, he's saying, I am God. Because it is God who, you know, breaks the walls of Jericho, not the trumpets, not the shofars. Right. And in that, in that case, the sort of righteous conquest, but mm-hmm. think about the destruction, you know, that from one perspective, but the destruction of the Canaanites and the other, everyone mm-hmm. killed except Rahab and her family. It's, right. It's kind of placing the, you know, the Americans on the side of, on the side of God, on the side of justice. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Righteousness. So then we meet Yinsen. The best. Who has all of 15 minutes of screen time, but is so important for setting mm-hmm. the tone of not just this movie, but I think the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. He really, yeah, he's he's the one more so than Christine who is able, and maybe just maybe Tony's more pre- receptive to being changed in this moment with the what has happened to him physically and emotionally. But Yinsen's the one who really pushes him and and helps him turn around. But then it's it's I love that section when Yinsen's pushing him, he says, um, look what you just saw. He's referring to the weapons. That is your legacy, Stark, your life's work in the hands of those murderers. Is that how you want to go out? Is this the last act of defiance of the great Tony Stark? Or are you going to do something about it? Really playing on his pride there in a way of turning him to something Mm -hmm. that will be better than destruction. Yinsen really opens Tony's eyes to... Mm the world outside of Tony's glitzy bubble. Uh, yeah. Telling stories about his home, mm-hmm. his family. We call, them the, we call them the walking dead, those who have the sure. same shrapnel wounds that Tony has. Uh, and he says, how did they get my guns? Mm-hmm. It, it's like, it's, it's like Tony has no conception of how, you know, the real world works. And it's because right. Stain has been, you know, kind of keeping that away from Tony his whole life. And, and Tony hasn't, until after this hasn't stepped up and said, wait a minute, let me take a look at this. He hasn't wanted to look deeper. He hasn't really needed to. And he's not, he's been isolated from the rest of the world enough to not have to until he's literally placed, you know, right alongside a person whose life has been destroyed by this kind of work. And then um, after the, the quotation you, you just said, Tony says, uh, I'll be dead in a week. And Yinsen has the best line <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. Well, then this is a very important week for you, isn't it? Yinsen tells Tony that he'll see his family when he leaves. And at that point, we don't realize that his family's dead. Mm-hmm. And Tony has no family. His family, his parents are dead. He ha- doesn't have any close relationships, uh, really, right. even even Pepper or, or, or um, the driver, Rhodes. John Favreau. Oh. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Happy. <laughs> his name's Happy. Happy? Yes. I uh, missed that too. Or My Rhodes. Uh, he doesn't. He just doesn't have these these close relationships, and so Yinsen says. So you're a man who has everything and mm. nothing. It shows that they value different things. Mm-hmm. What makes a man rich? For Yinsen, it's his family, it's his relationships, and for Tony, at this point in the movie, it's his stuff, it's his money, it's his fame. 
And so when Yinsen then decides to go buy Tony those few precious minutes in order to let the, uh, let the suit boot up, he shows Tony what a selfless act looks like. Yep, by running out. And he shoots up. Did you notice that? He's not shooting at the soldiers. He's shooting up purely to provide a distraction. I just wonder if Tony has ever seen selflessness before until then. Um, even mm. even as a child, I mean, his his father was consumed with his work. Mm-hmm. We don't know really anything about his mom. Uh, we find out, of course, later why they were why they died. But that's in uh, that's in another movie. I was thinking of the, the the magazine covers when they're flashing by. It kind of makes it look like Obadiah does this great selfless act by you know taking the reins when Howard dies, and then when the young prodigal son comes of age, handing it over to him. That is ends up not being the way things you know that might could be considered a selfless act of handing it back to someone who is kind of untested and yet he's still controlling things from the background it's not truly what it seems mm-hmm. and so we tony is exposed to this selflessness from yinsen and then he he comes up to him and they have that beautiful exchange what does yinsen say he says this is always the plan stark I want this. I want this. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life. Yeah. Don't waste your life. Do not waste your life. And that's the moment where Tony's repentance begins. I think it's, it's at that moment when Yinsen dies and passes this mission on to Tony that the metanoia, that changing of the mind, changing of the heart it sets Tony loose and mm-hmm. he's had these three months in this cave to basically metamorphose, uh, become this new person right before instance says, don't waste your life. Tony says, thank you for saving me. Mm. Tony expresses gratitude, which he's probably never done in his life. Sincerely, certainly not, not, not sincerely. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and says, and thank you for saving me. Yinsen has been his salvation, like his literal salvation in this moment. Um, and not just because he ran out of the cave to buy him the time, but also because mm-hmm. he modeled for Tony what it looks like to take the last week of your life and to make it meaningful. Mm. And then, then, then he says that don't waste your life. Well, and you can, so you can see how different Tony is at the press conference. He's sitting down, which is bizarre, but then he's also a little bit more vulnerable. He's kind of monologuing about his dad, his doubts. And it comes into this moment of self-reflection when he says, I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. I had my eyes open. And he kind of continues talking about the direction he wants to go in. Um, as a person and taking essentially his change of heart and sort of making shockwaves through the company and probably through the, and through the world evidently. Oh, definitely. Because they have, they have, they have uh, shareholders. Oh yes. Right. Apparently shareholders have rights too. So they have this, he has this, let's just stay there for a minute before we jump Mm -hmm. to the second half of the quote. Right. Um, I saw that I become a part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. Part of repentance part of that change or that returning that you talked about from the Hebrew mm-hmm. is understanding what accountability looks like. We've talked a couple of times about the 12 steps in during this season. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the 12 steps are, are seen as kind of treading back on up a road that you went down mm-hmm. and going past mm-hmm. all of the people that you hurt along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I always like to say to people um, what, re- when we repent, and when we turn around, whatever wrong road that we were on, uh, it automatically becomes the right oh, road once you turn around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 so that's what's happening with Tony here. Is he's he's been on a one path. He turns around and realizes all of the the collateral damage that has happened mm-hmm. along the way because he had no idea and that his weapons were being were had fallen into the hands of these terrorists, um, that they had been used to kill American soldiers and civilians in Golmira and other places. You wonder why he would not know that his weapons could fall into the wrong hands. And it's just because he doesn't want to know. Right. It's willful blindness, it seems. He's he's isolated himself in this world of comfort, material comforts and creature comforts, and doesn't have doesn't think about the system that he's a part of. He thinks of it very black and white of we need, you know, 
America needs a bigger stick. I create the bigger stick and hmm, I just happen to make a lot of money along the way. And that's when he says, I had my eyes opened. Mm-hmm. So the, the blindness falls away, the scales fall off of his eyes. And then, you know, I have more to offer this world than making things that blow up. Later on, he says he's the one with his name on the side of the building. So what the company produces is ultimately he's directing that as the CEO. So he says what direction it, the company should take one that I'm comfortable with and is consistent with the highest good for this country as well. Um, and sort of taking responsibility for that larger system. His name is the, is the one on the side of the missile that almost killed him. This one that the ones that are in the hands of these terrorists and he feels personally responsible for the direction his company is going in. That's when Stain goes into, quote, damage control mode, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating phrase, considering that Tony is in damage control mode in a different way. Very different, By, yeah. by not having, by trying to get, to, to get a handle on all of the weapons that are out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's trying to control that damage at the same time Stain is trying to keep the company from uh, having that shockwave you talked about before. I imagine, like you said, when you turn back, when you turn around on the road and suddenly the right road is the one you've been following just in the wrong direction, imagining him turning around that moment and seeing behind him the destruction that every weapon he had, he had built had caused, all of the creativity that he so revels in and delights in. Um, you see that in those quieter moments, well, not quiet because he's blasting classic rock, but those moments where he's alone and working on engines, it truly is a delight and, and I think a gift. Mm-hmm. but they've been used in a way that he now sees has a, such a dark side. And so in that moment of turning around, it's painful because you see what has happened and what, what, how the deep hole you've kind of dug yourself into and coming mm. out of that um, can almost be harder than get, it was much harder than getting into it in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Because the sec- the coming out of it is on purpose. Yeah, the getting into it, it, it just it happens because you don't realize it until you're there, and then you get out of it. Uh, you have to try to get out. Why are you smiling? I'm thinking of those raccoon traps <laughs> that are like it's like a tube with um, nails that are angled Ugh. in a way that a raccoon seeing something shiny in the bottom could easily reach its hand in, and oh. it's smooth going on the way in because the yeah, the nails ouch, are pointing ouch. down. But if you try to reverse out, it could get out if it let go of the shiny thing. So that's the, the metaphor breaks down. It has to be intentional about coming back up. Otherwise, it rips up its hands on those nails. Um, wow, I never thought I'd theologically reflect on a raccoon trap. But here we are. Nerdy Christians podcast at its best. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not pro-killing uh, raccoons, no. I guess. Although they're no. varmints some places. I don't know. Anyway, but it takes intentional action is what I'm saying. And you were saying... Um, Tony goes to see Rhodey and says, I'm working on something big. It's not for the military. And they have a little bit more exchange. And then mm. Rhodes says, you need time to get your mind right. And I think that's a really fascinating line considering what we're talking about is that Tony has gotten his mind right. And now he's fighting against the system that he's been a part of all this time, which is trying to get him back into his earlier mode. And yet he has changed his mind, changed his heart and changed his life and the system will not let him be that. And so he builds a suit that he can get inside of in order to protect him from that system. Right. In fact, it would reward him for going back to the way he was. And, and this whole experience would be a nice, another line on a, on a kind of resume of his life of overcoming great adversity and, and almost another PR point, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, he oh, would sure. be easily very much lauded for that by people like Rhodes who are in that system. But you're right. Instead, he shields himself from it, from the damage that it would cause and chooses to work outside the system. And thus the vigilante superhero Avengers thing is not born because Nick Fury is already working on it, but he's definitely making it, bringing it into the world in his own way. And and this is where we have to just stay in the first Iron Man movie because it's so hard. Later on, he wants to build the suit of iron around the world um, which is when he falls out with Captain America mm-hmm. because Captain America sees that as, as a gross injustice. For, for now, we're here in this first movie and he thinks, yeah, he thinks that maybe in mine, my hands, the Iron Man suit can, can do some good. Well, it comes back to that taking personal responsibility. He, 
he's taking and I think especially in having again having his name on the side of the building he's personally responsible for everything that happens and now the only way he sees to fight that is to be personally responsible for helping the refugees in Golmira for example mm-hmm. that first vigilante mission he takes on the American military is there tracking him. They say, wait, what just happened in Gomira? We weren't authorized to go in there because they were using human shields. Oh, that was painful to hear. Right. We couldn't go in. We couldn't just drop a bomb on them. Especially you hear that news broadcast and the reporter saying something like, you know, unless internet, you know, there's no international will. So these refugees have no hope. Um, and he hears that and takes it very deeply to heart, thinking that there's no it shows, I think, the gray areas because he's thinking they're not cho- they're choosing not to do anything. I have agency. I'll go and s- fix the situation. So then we we get back to Malibu and Stain comes in with a pizza, and uh, they're chatting. And he says, "Tony, the board has rights too. They're making the case that you and your new direction isn't in the company's best interest." And Tony says, "I'm being responsible. That's a new direction for me for the company." Yes, he's getting himself conflated. Yeah, um, I'm being responsible. He sees he, this new life that he's set his course on because of of Yinsen's intervention in that life has set him on this path where he is now in a direct collision course with the the profit margin of the company. Mm-hmm. And and if everything is about the almighty dollar, then um, where is that personal responsibility? Where is the accountability? Um, Tony is, has decided to take a stand here. I think they have another part of their argument about oh, the board meetings before they go to before they go to Golmira. Yeah, uh, bummer. But it's, oh well. All right. Anyway, and at that at that gala, I think the one the one bit from Obadiah that I really want to highlight is that you can't afford to be this naive. That Tony has been sheltered and shielded from the complexities of this work that he's in. Obadiah is very much living living in that ambiguity to the point where he's gone way, way too far and is double dealing just to make profit. Mm-hmm. And Tony says, I was naive before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was naive before when they said, here's the line, don't cross it. Before the benefit, we get the, um, the, the lovely thing, the gift from Pepper. Oh, the proof yeah, that Tony Stark that. has a heart, right? I love that. Um, we're, we're talking about the concept of repentance being a change of heart. Change and when mm-hmm. your heart changes, your life changes. And so we actually have, if you consider the arc, the little miniature arc reactor, to be Tony's heart. We actually have a literal change of heart yeah. in this movie, which I think is really cool. But just the fact that um, we know that Tony has a heart, that Pepper sees it, and that she's been with him this long mm-hmm. because she sees that he, that there's something deeper than the person that he's been showing the world. Right. She gets to see a bit behind the curtain. And she's the one who knows he's got a heart. And they, they, they dance at the benefit. And of course, he then leaves her there because he has to go on his mission, thus setting up the tension in their relationship for the sure. rest of their lives. After that, I, we don't see Tony the womanizer either. Uh, really after that either. He, mm-hmm. He's very much will he won't, will they won't they with Pepper up right. until it, it they're together in, uh, later on. And the way he draws her into this, his own repentance, his change of heart, he starts to challenge her. It's not, it's not unlike Christine, who was placing, as I said earlier, the mirror up to Tony. Tony's now doing it to Pepper. He's saying, you've been along with me this whole time and you've seen what this has done. You're equally responsible. And that's, I think, a really interesting development in their character because she ends up uh, capitulating, she goes on. She goes into the break into the office and get the files to prove that Obadiah has been double dealing, and gets drawn into that whole ending conflict in the last act. But their relationship hitting a new level of accountability to each other, and that starts sowing the seeds for their later development as in a deeper relationship. I love the quote that you pulled out to be our nerd canon quote today. When they're having that exchange, Pepper is worried about Tony's well-being. And he says, I shouldn't be alive unless it was for a reason. That was going back to Yinsen saying, don't waste your life. I'm not crazy, Pepper. I just finally know what I have to do. And I know in my heart, and he he really pounds the arc reactor there. I know in my heart that it's right. And then Obadiah says to her, I was so happy when Tony came home. It was like we got mm. him back from the dead. Now I realize, well, Tony never really did come home, did he? He left a part of himself in that cave, 
breaks my heart. Um, and so there's this, there's a lot of play on, on the Boy, word heart in this movie, sure. right? And um, what Stain is is similar to with Rhodey and the mind, um, get your mind right. Uh, Stain saying he left himself in the cave. He left, in Stain's mind, the good part of himself in the cave, the part that was making money for me. And naive and willing, not willing to look any deeper. Yeah, willing to be the poster child that let Stain then just run the company the way he wanted to um, and not have to be accountable. But he brought back, he really brought back the best part of himself. So let's just wrap this up with a little liturgical exercise. The confession of sin includes the phrase, um, we have not loved you with our whole heart. This is, we have not loved God. We have not loved God with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And I wonder how often people hear that and say and think to themselves, we humbly are sorry for that. Because we say we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. So it's almost like sorry and we're really sorry. We're sorry and we're saying it right now, which is repentance <laughs> right. in this one moment. We're saying it. It's that external thing from yeah. the Richard Rohr quote before. But what if we put the concept of metanoia in there, this concept we've been talking about with Tony Stark, and, and rewrote it so it said we are truly sorry and we humbly seek to change our hearts and our lives. That completely opens up this new door for us, this new pathway. And it's the pathway that Tony finds himself on when he leaves the cave. And it opens it, not just like you were saying, the past, what has happened and the present that I'm sorry, but it opens it into the future. And I think we, in the post-credit scene, Nick Fury talking to him, he says, you think you're the only superhero in the world, Mr. Stark, you've become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. And it sort of sets, sets the future path ahead of him with a excitement, with knowing that there will be challenges and that, that turn of heart, that complete change of mind and heart and life leads to this new future. We're back with our book group, continuing to read Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Here is a quick recap of chapters 13 through 15. Chapter 13, The Very Secret Diary. On their way back from visiting Hermione in the hospital wing, the boys discover Moaning Myrtle wailing and sobbing. Someone has thrown a book at her, and she is taking it quite personally. Despite Ron's warning that it could be dangerous, it seems like nothing more than a blank diary, albeit one from 50 years ago and purchased in Muggle London. It's an odd diary, and it seems to be impervious to damage. One night, Harry writes in the diary, and it writes back. It reveals that it is the preserved memories of Tom Riddle, who went to Hogwarts the last time the chamber was opened. Harry dives in, literally, and sees a scene through Riddle's eyes, a tense conversation with the current headmaster, who reveals that the school will have to close if the attacks continue, and the discovery that 13-year-old Hagrid had been keeping a monster in the castle. Emerging from the diary, Harry tells the unbelievable news to Ron. The last person to open the Chamber of Secrets was Hagrid? Chapter 14, Cornelius Fudge. That's an awkward conversation to have with a friend. Hey, Hagrid, how's your most recent monster rampage going? But the trio decides to let it be for now as the attacks have slowed. But on the way down to the Quidditch field, Harry hears that strange voice again and Hermione has a brilliant flash of insight, which she neglects to share with the boys before running off to the library. Quidditch has been canceled, they find out, as there has been another attack. Hermione and a prefect named Penelope were found petrified with a hand mirror at their side. It's time to confront Hagrid, and Harry and Ron meet him at his cabin, but are interrupted by the arrival of Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, Dumbledore, and Lucius Malfoy. Hiding under the invisibility cloak, the boys witness Hagrid's arrest, a publicity move by Fudge, and Dumbledore's suspension, an underhanded manipulation by Malfoy. Before leaving the hut, the enigmatic headmaster announces to seemingly nobody that help will always be found at Hogwarts for those who ask for it, and Hagrid announces, again, to nobody, that anyone looking for answers need only follow the spiders. Chapter 15, Aragog. But spiders are difficult to find and even more difficult to follow owing to the curfew that has been placed on the school. 
In Herbology class, the Hufflepuffs apologize for thinking Harry was a muggle-born hating murderer, but more important than that are the spiders fleeing towards the forest. Ron and Harry return under the invisibility cloak and follow them deep into the forbidden forest, where they have a delightful run-in with the old flying car, which has been roaming free in the woods. Ron's worst nightmare comes true when they are captured by giant spiders and brought deep into the forest to the spider's lair. This is a children's book. Aragog, the patriarch of his spider family, was raised from an egg by Hagrid, but he insists he was not the monster from the chamber. So good, there are two monsters at Hogwarts, at least. The monster from the chamber is the one the spiders fear above all else and who killed a girl 50 years ago in a bathroom. Although the spiders will not harm Hagrid, they do not extend the same courtesy to Ron and Harry, closing in for a meal. Help arrives in the form of the battered Ford Anglia, which heroically swoops in and drives them to safety. As the boys settle down for the night, Harry realizes the girl who was killed was found in a bathroom. What if she never left the bathroom? What if it's moaning Myrtle? My wife is terrified of spiders, so she will not watch that scene. It's really horrible. And it's and it's it's scary. I'm not afraid of spiders, but that in yeah. the movie it is really get they they really go for it. As Ron says, why couldn't it be follow the butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> I love that Ron intuits that the da- the diary is dangerous. Oh, he's so spot on in this book. This book he is yeah. He is everything. intuitive he knows and everything. he is protective. Well, I think the the book was interesting because um, that is very much what we learn later is a, a magical thing to teach your kids. Kind of like muggles might say, don't talk to strangers. Um, Mr. Weasley kind of repeats, don't talk to anything that you can't see where it keeps its brain. And I do appreciate the kind of meta commentary on like a book being dangerous. Say it isn't so when this was, you know, maybe around this time starting to have some of that hatred and suspicion towards Harry Potter for being about witchcraft. Mm. Um, and I love the idea of a book you can't put down because I probably wandered around my house with the book open like that poor witch who was cursed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's too, c- cooking with one hand while she reads. Ron jokes also correctly about Riddle murdering Myrtle. Right. I think that's where the um, the theory that Ron only is correct when he's joking about things came, which okay. we've discussed in this podcast, yeah. is not true. I think it's interesting how Tom Riddle in the diary, in the memory, really shows Harry what Harry needs to see in order for Riddle to make an ally of Harry. Basically, Riddle shows Harry all of the ways that they're alike. Yeah, orphans. Orphans who grew up in in very uh, tough situations, who never want to leave Hogwarts, um, who who hold things back from headmasters. Mm, that that scene with Dippet, yeah, mirrors that earlier scene with Dumbledore. Yeah, so they're very much alike, uh, Riddle and Harry. And so Harry wants to believe him. He 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 has no reason not to. And you know, we know who Riddle is, obviously. But um, if you're reading this book from from not not knowing that at all. I thought he was great. I thought he was a great guy. That's all. I mean, I I do remember being, I was duped. I was doubting Hagrid. I'm also a very trusting reader. Um, So I I, I find, you know, unreliable narration to be very tricky to navigate because I, I fall so deeply into the narrative. But he's very good at manipulating people and showing them the face, like you said, that they want to see. And Harry is feeling connected to him it's on a personal level, and then on a more meta level, we know it's it's the souls calling out to each other. It's the fragments of souls, mm-hmm. and Harry that the complete and utter sadness of that of Harry saying he felt like um, Tom was a, a friend he had known a long time ago when he was small. Just this the utter sadness that comes from that. Yeah, that that's that's really creepy. Knowing what their connection is. There's an interesting character picture or character study in these chapters when they're we didn't include it in the um in the summary because it's not super important to the plot but they pick classes for their third year and i think it's funny how neville gets advice from all his relatives dean a muggle-born student picks kind of randomly they kind of joke and say hermione picks everything and then it turns out she literally picks everything yep. ron takes the classes that his family members took and harry just picks what ron picks Oh, like each of those is so appropriate to the characters. Um, and I also really 
my heart resonates as an uh, as a grown up who has had a sort of meandering path in life to think of twelve year olds having to pick this the studies that will determine <laughs> the rest of their careers. Like we make high school students do that, but they're twelve. So they they hear you know, Riddle fingers Hagrid with the crime of opening the chamber. And then at the beginning of chapter 14, they decide not to go talk to Hagrid about it. And, and you made light of it in the, uh, in the recap, but I'm, mm. I'm really, I want to think about that for a minute. There's a, a, a long tradition in the Harry Potter books of the kids not talking to the grownups. Right. And yet Hagrid seems to be one of the grownups that they will talk to when they won't talk to Dumbledore or McGonagall or whoever else, they will go see Hagrid. But in this case, because Hagrid seems to be the one who has been implicated um, by somebody that we've never met who lived 50 years ago, who, you know, has, is manipulating Harry, even though Harry doesn't know that, nor does the reader at this point. Why don't they go see Haggard here? I mean, if I was 12 and kind of conflict avoidant, it's not a conversation you'd want to have. I guess, I guess maybe there, Harry is trusting too much in this vision of, of Tommy's thinking it's, it's a pretty cut and dry black and white thing. Um, and as I explained, I think it's the beginning of chapter 14. It kind of tracks with Hagrid's character, not that he would be maliciously attacking Mugglebore students, but they say um, like that if he found out there was a monster in the castle, he'd probably thought it was a shame that the monster had been cooped up so long and thought it deserved a chance to stretch its many legs. Indeed, So yes. that it's consistent yeah. with Hagrid's character to have it come from a place of misplaced compassion and i guess that is true yeah yeah but it's but it's the that it's still happening now i think is a point in there against them well they basically say well nothing's happened for four months so maybe everything's okay now we'll we'll wait until something else happens before we go (laughs) see him and then of course it's hermione um which which gets them to go finally go see hagrid and they never actually get to talk to him and that's when we get to meet our friend and minister of magic, Cornelius Fudge, who says, I'm under a lot of pressure, got to be seen to be doing something. Oh my gosh. It's so appropriate for the rest of his, speaking of character studies like this, this is him in a nutshell. Yeah. Just do, do something so that we can say we're doing something, whether or not it's the right thing. And then they send Hagrid to Azkaban with no trial, with no, charge with with nothing i mean this is this is like serious fascism here i mean just sending him to to azkaban with with nothing and dumbledore doesn't even fight that it really makes me wonder um because he i mean his his prior he had been seen to be responsible for the for the death of moaning myrtle the death of this girl and 50 years ago that his punishment would be expulsion, but he's still allowed to work at the school where he ostensibly committed the crime. That's very odd to me. Um, and it's, it just goes to show it was not, no one was ever really convinced it was Hagrid. They were just happy that it stopped and they were happy to have someone to pin it on. And likewise now, but now they're escalating the punishment. Like doesn't the ministry have cells in it, like lockup that don't involve dementors? Yeah, and I wonder if J.K. Rowling wrote in the Azkaban bit before she really knew what Azkaban was like. I mean, she meant they mentioned the guards of Azkaban, so maybe she had an idea of the Dementors, but I just wonder if she didn't really know how bad it was yet. Especially Dementors as a... They are disturbing on an existential level. I don't think that was really present in this book. Dumbledore then, of course, has the famous line, help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. And... He's saying that to Harry. We assume that Dumbledore has cast the D&D spell C invisibility. <laughs> he um, always can. It's his permit. Can. His eyes. Right. His eyes. Um, it, but it's, it's the question that he, it, when he says that, he's telling Harry, you know, you, need, you just need to ask. I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to help. I have mm. answers. But you need to be the one that comes to me because I know that you're sitting there, you know, you, you came to me once and you didn't, Tell me the truth, and you didn't let let me in. And yet here, here I'm saying it again. Help will be given if you ask for help. And of course, it's so hard for Harry to understand when Dumbledore's been suspended later in the in the next chapter. He's like, Well, how do I ask if he's gone? He wants to, I think at that point he wants to open up, but now he can't see a pathway towards it. 
I guess I just wonder at the power dynamic, like, isn't it Dumbledore's responsibility as the older, more experienced one to show a little bit more of his hand Mm. to this person who's clearly struggling and yet that's Dumbledore like through and through. So we can quibble about that later. Yeah. He he definitely has that. You said enigmatic streak. Um, But if you think about it from a faith perspective, you know, in a free will perspective, Dumbledore is, is not taking away Harry's agency here. That's a good point. That Dumbledore could just swoop in and, and take care of everything, but he's not the main character in this book. And Dumbledore is all about choices, determining who we are and what we do. Mm-hmm. Speaking of choices, Lockhart, in his normal blustery self, says the Minister of Magic wouldn't have taken Hagrid if it hadn't if he hadn't been one hundred percent sure that he was guilty. Oh, you know? Lockhart, you can't afford to be this naive, <laughs> as our friend Stain would say. <laughs> oh my goodness! And yet he absolutely can, because the whole world trusts in this system that is broken. And we, of course, we don't know how badly broken the Ministry of Magic is yet, but we we will later on. Um, which goes back to something we said last time about, or maybe a couple couple of episodes ago, where we talked about the the cracks in the the society showing in this book. Mm, in the first book, wider. you don't really see it, but here in this book, we see those cracks, and when we see the underbelly of magical society, and hearing of the wizard prison is part of that, and and seeing a good friend go, you know, go there, and then and later in the book when he comes back, being a sort of changed person starts to open that questioning for Harry, I think, that it's somebody he loves who is who has been punished wrongly. Anything else you want to talk about on these chapters? I also hate spiders. Once again, we experienced this when we were going through Sorcerer's Stone. Um, this is the kind of deep breath before the plunge into those final chapters. So Yeah, well, we're going to get some more. There's always that ending of the book stuff to talk about, and which we'll get in the next episode. The Dumbledore download, yes, as I call it. No one else does. <laughs> That's your thing. <laughs> I made it up. So what are we going to talk about next time? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading chapters 16, 17, and 18 of Chamber of Secrets. That's The Chamber of Secrets, The Heir of Slytherin, and Dobby's Reward. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media facebook.com slash nerdy christians and on twitter at nerdy christians you can find me on twitter at rev adam thomas or on my website where the please do check out my new fantasy novel the islands of shattered glass on amazon you can always find both carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for nerdy christians may the strength of god the grace of jesus and the wisdom of the holy spirit bless you and keep you this day always as we change our hearts and minds, live with our eyes open to the world around us, with integrity, standing up for what we know in our hearts is right. Amen.